You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy One Muslim Podcast. This is Osma Jaffrey. My beautiful co-host is on East Coast time right now. And when we have some scheduling, you know, disarray, sometimes we just have to, you know, pick up for each other. And that's what we do. And she's done it for me before. So I am super duper excited uh, to do this podcast recording. I did want to give you guys an update about um, my week because it's typically what Zeba and I talk about. My update is girls trips. So I think it was unheard of. And I think this is generally true of all moms of my generation that when we were growing up, our mothers did not take girls trips. That was unheard of. So when I started having kids and finally found my mom crew, which was many years into motherhood, uh, I found this mom crew and then it was like, okay, let's have girls nights out. Uh, out. And we would go out for like coffee, the dinner, and then end up staying out all night sometimes just sharing mommying notes, wifey notes, Islamic notes, just stuff. And my mom was like, how can you leave your kid and go all night long? And it's like, well, I'm not. It's for a few hours. I do leave my kids and go all night long to work for 12 hours. That's okay. Um, because that's something you quote unquote have to do. There's no compulsion, not in religion and not in anything else. So we choose the things we want to do. And when we want to choose good company that makes us better Muslims and better moms, I think we should do it. And it is very good self-care. I encourage everybody to find your crew, the one who serves you and supports you and your children and go on those girls trips. Overnights are okay. You're not a bad mom for spending the night away from your children. I know it's hard when you have the littles, but you know what? Take them. I had a cousin once go on a Euro trip uh, with the rest of the cousins and I think she took her baby. So it is possible. Again, happiness is a choice. So make it fill your cup. Um, the soapbox for today is really short and sweet. I wanted to give you guys an update on our model of responsible, sustainable philanthropy. You guys remember way back when we were talking about, um, it was shortly after Ramadan, we started recruiting for the American Muslim Women's Giving Circle, which is the first giving circle of its kind for anybody who's ever been a part of any kind of community giving or community savings program. That's what this is. And together, we... 50 some odd women got together and raised over $26,000 for three nonprofits this year. And it was, it was a learning curve. Let me tell you, it was the first time we ran it and there was a lot of bumps, but you know, alhamdulillah, the entire group of women got together and decided like, these are the decisions we're going to make. This is the process that we're going to do. And we ended up having I think it was nine nonprofits apply for this $26,000. Three were selected by the membership, and then those three were also ranked by the members. And um, by the way, to get into the giving circle and to get a vote in the giving circle, it was a donation of $420. Um, and that covered administrative fees. And what that means is the financial house that was holding the money and investing the money for us, they uh We'll also be cutting the checks to everybody and sending a tax receipt to everyone because 
that it's the financial institution is a nonprofit too. So we're making tax exempt donations to other nonprofits that are doing really good work on the ground. And so three Muslim nonprofits were ranked one, two, and three. First place got 50% of that $26,000. Second place got 30%. And third place got 20%. I wanted to announce the winners. And the first one is Facing Abuse in Community Environments Face, based out of Dallas, Texas. Um, I wonder if their headquarters has changed since their founder has moved, but uh, originally based out of Dallas, Texas, and they uh, address spiritual abuse, spiritual sexual uh, violence that happens in our communities to this day and holds those leaders and those organizations that employ them accountable. Investigations are done. Um, from, you know, with both sides and it's very trauma centered, trauma oriented care. And uh, I love it. I nominated that organization. I'm really, really happy to um, say that they won the majority of that grant this year. It was the very first grant that we've given out. So excited. Um, and they were in our second season, I believe, uh, facing abuse with Ali Asalam. The founder was on there talking about sexual abuse in um, spiritual leadership. So please tune in and listen to that. It's a great episode to find out about the excellent work they do. Second, uh, to win 30% of that grant money was Peaceful Families Project based out of Virginia. They do amazing work, not the least of which is education and research about domestic violence and, you know, everything that makes our families whole and needs to be overcome in order to do that as well. They have some very exciting projects that they're going to use this money towards, and we're super duper excited to award them that grant. Third, last but not least, winning 20% of this grant money is the Texas Muslim Women's Foundation. October is not just Disability Awareness Month, it's also Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, Texas Muslim Women's Foundation um, addresses domestic violence, not just in the Muslim community, it serves all religions and um, races, ethnicities, and they provide comprehensive resources and care to uh, women who are suffering from domestic violence as well as their children, and they have a transitional housing unit as well. We are super excited to support these three organizations and hope that everyone who did not get a chance to join the American Muslim Women's Giving Circle this year will come on for 2022. The earlier we um, invest our money, the more it has the potential to grow. Sure, it could, you know, go down in uh, a halal mutual fund, but if we can grow it responsibly and conservatively, then, you know, our goal is inshallah next year, $50,000 will be raised to give away, but we probably need somewhere along 100 members, and I hope we can recruit you all by Ramadan. That's our soapbox for today. I am so happy to continue talking about disability awareness because it wasn't even a word that I felt comfortable using until I got schooled by a disability advocate who was like, stop saying differently able. You better say disability because, um, you know, don't minimize like who we are and part of our identity. So Disability Awareness Month, a uh, former guest on our podcast is here to grace us today. You guys remember Keto Muslim mom, Sadia Qureshi. She is a mom of five, a business owner, and she shares her fitness journey online as an inspiration to everybody, aka at Keto Muslim Mom. Look her up on Instagram. What we heard last time and wanted to explore this episode was her advocacy for her eldest daughter who has Down syndrome. While we love the food she makes, we wanted to focus on the ceilings she breaks today. Welcome back, Sadia. Assalamu alaikum. Well, alaikum, Thank you so much for having me again. 
We are stoked and we know that um, some folks did not get to listen to the Keto Muslim Mom episode and they may not know you. So we always like to kick off by asking a little bit about your mom's story and your momming philosophy. Well, I have five kids now. My eldest is 16 and her name is Hiba. She has Down syndrome. Um, I became a mom at 22. Um, so it was very early and I will say that I was not very much prepared um, for what motherhood had in store for me. Um, but my daughter really got me going. Um, I also have four other uh, kids. Um, I have a son who's 12, a daughter who's seven, a daughter who's four, and then a 19-month-old baby boy who keeps me on my toes and is still not sleeping through the night. Um <laughs> So I apologize if I sound a little tired tonight. Mashallah. I can't believe he's 19 months old. I feel like he was just born. I mean, I stalk you online, so that's why I feel like I know him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, um, it's amazing the things that he's doing. And I'm just like, wow, really? Like two years almost have gone by? That's Mashallah. crazy. That's insane, insane. And you're still doing your Keto Muslim Mom um, journey, and we appreciate that. But take us back to, you know, a young first-time mom, first of all, breaking those stereotypes that we were raised with. And so this is pre any kind of education that I had um, when our mom said, you have to get married early. Otherwise, if you get married too late, your child will have Down syndrome. Well, you had a child with Down syndrome at 22. So you already broke that stereotype and that fallacy early on. Um, tell us a little bit about what that postpartum experience was like as a young mom with this big diagnosis now in your lap. So it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I think I had heard that uh, growing up as well, not really from my parents, but I think in general from the medical community, because I know that when I got pregnant, um, you know, they have that triple screen test and it's a test pretty much for testing for Down syndrome. Um, and I had a cousin, I had a first cousin with Down syndrome growing up. Mm. So my mom's eldest sister or almost eldest, second eldest sister's son was born with Down syndrome in London. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't something that I did not know anything about. I actually right. did um, having a family member with Down syndrome, but they were so far away. I probably only met him a few times in my life. And unfortunately, he passed away at age nine from heart complications. Um, later on, when I was doing my research, I found out that um, he was nonverbal. Um, so he had a lot more going on than my daughter. Um, and then just going back. So I uh, got married at 21, um, got pregnant at 22. And I think I was about five months along um, when they did that triple screen test. And I didn't really think anything about it. And I even think like, you know, my family was like, well, you're young, you know, so there's nothing to worry about. But we just did the test as a, you know, just what, because that's what they do in the doctor's office. Um, I got the diagnosis actually over the phone by a nurse and she was very just blunt. And it was just your, you know, your child has a one in 37 chance of having Down syndrome. Um, and do you want to schedule an amniocentesis? And that was kind of it. And I just remember hanging up, my husband was at work and I called him and I was crying and 
Um, he came home that night with a, a cute little onesie. We didn't know what we were having at the time. So it was like a gender neutral mm-hmm. onesie. He was just like, everything's going to be okay. Um, I called my mom at that time. She was visiting Pakistan and, you know, I started crying and I told her and that's exactly what she said was there's no way you're 22 years old. This only happens to moms who are 35 plus. The doctors are crazy. Don't have the amnio because you're going to risk, you know, having a miscarriage of a perfectly normal. So I feel like um, I got a lot of misinformation. And I mean, I don't think that anybody's hearts were, you know, in the wrong place. I think everyone wanted to give me strength and support. Um, what we decided, we didn't do any invasive testing. So we did not do the amnio, um, but we had other tests done. We had a fetal echocardiogram. Um, so now this is like from six months until nine months, I was having several tests done. Um, I think her echocardiogram came back normal. Um, so we were kind of in the clear, I guess. Um, it wasn't until three days after birth. Well, actually, when she came out, the first thing I said, I looked at my husband, I said, is everything okay? And he was like, yes, you're crazy. And my mom, everybody was just like, because I had such a rough last couple months of my pregnancy, thinking about this and it weighing heavily on me, um, that they all thought I was just paranoid. Um, so anyways, I forgot about it. My daughter was in the NICU for eight days. Um, she had poor feeding issues and jaundice. She was on oxygen. Um, I remember when a on staff pediatrician came in the room and it was like day two, I think. And she said, I want to run some tests and it just might be some Asian characteristics, but we just want to run some tests right then. My heart sank because I just, I had this feeling like I knew it was like too good to be true. And when they did the karyotyping so that, you know, they checked the chromosomes and then I think it was day three that they confirmed that that it's trisomy 21. It's down syndrome. It's not any kind of mosaic down syndrome. It's just regular down syndrome. Um, And I think the way that it was delivered, it was just, it was heart crushing. I just remember my mom asking a lot of questions. I remember me crying. Um, And when my mom was asking questions, I actually got upset because I said, well, what is the point of all these questions? Like, if she has it, she has it. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. Um, When she was discharged home, so she was eight days old, um, the early intervention therapies started like immediately. Um, my wounds, my emotional and physical wounds were not even healed yet. And I was having early intervention therapists come into my home, like literally the day after I think I, that she was discharged. Um, it was, it, it was un, like uncharted territory for me. Cause I didn't understand what was happening. Yeah. Um, again, this was my first, so I didn't really know what was normal. I didn't have a lot to compare it to, but um, they, they were doing, uh, feeding therapy, um, because before they do speech therapy, they do feeding therapy. They were doing occupational therapy, physical therapy. So I was getting like three, four therapists in my home every single day. And I have a brand new baby at home. Just to, um, not to interrupt, but just for the audience who doesn't know, um, yeah. you know, what occupational and physical therapy are you going to do? For a newborn, for those who are confused, can you clarify what that looks like? 
Um, yeah, they had her on an exercise ball. Um, they were trying to strengthen her core literally from like the minute she came out. Um, there was just all kinds of exercises that they would have her do. Um, and, you know, it's kind of all a blur right now to me. Um, she actually, after she was born, I think she was two months old when they told us that, oh, yeah, remember that fetal echocardiogram? Well, now she has three holes in her heart. And now we need to do open heart surgery. So now another blow at four months of age, she had open heart surgery um, at one of like the major hospitals here in Illinois. Um, and I, I actually had heart surgery myself. My sister and I were preemies. Um, and I just remember her going in like smiling. And it's just a testament to how strong she is. She came out of that. And healed. I mean, she was discharged in two days. Wow. And we were all just baffled. It was the first day of Ramadan when she went in for her open heart surgery. Um, so it was a it was a long journey. And I think I never really had the support. Um, you know, the, the hospital gave us a pamphlet about Down syndrome and just kind of sent us on our way. Um, I think maybe a social worker came and did like one visit. Um, there was no follow up. There was no education for me. Um, it was just here are the therapists coming into your home. And, you know, um, I think at that time, Gigi's Playhouse, which is a local um, charity, or I mean, it's a local foundation for kids with Down syndrome. So Gigi was only like a year old. So her mom had just started that. So I hadn't found that yet. Um, so that, that came out like maybe when she was eight months or 10 months when I actually found this organization in Illinois where I met other moms with kids with Down syndrome. Um, and that was important. It's surprising to me that, you know, with the doctor finding out early on in your pregnancy that, hey, there's this positive test and all these follow-ups are happening that they didn't advise you to maybe, or maybe they did, correct me if I'm wrong, advise you to line up a pediatrician and have a pediatrician now on your team who's doing that follow-up. Because typically two days, three days after discharge, um, we're following up with a pediatrician, then one week, two weeks, one month. So pretty frequently, there was no education that came either from your OB's office or from the pediatrician's office regarding, you know, how you were going to navigate this diagnosis? No, there wasn't. And I think initially it was, they were leading towards maybe indirectly termination. Um, there's also no um, like pediatrician that specializes in kids with Down syndrome. So initially, I mean, I'm a young mom. I have no idea. I thought, okay, so am I supposed to go to like a special pediatrician? Mm -hmm. And I was told, no, you just go to a regular pediatrician. Um, and they would, you know, they would show you charts. So it was like, this is what a regular child's development should be. And this is where your child is. Well, that doesn't really help me, oh. you know, it made me more like worried. Um, I, my twin sister had a boy three months before I did. So I was, you know, watching him meet his developmental milestones and okay, well, my daughter, you know, is a little bit behind. And then that gap grew and grew. Um, but I didn't really know what to compare it to. Like, okay, right. is she on the right path for Down syndrome? Um, obviously, she's not, you know, where her peers, or her typical peers are. Um, so it was a lot of just really me navigating on my own. So I have a question. You, um, it seems that you had 
a reaction, a particular specific reaction to your mom asking a lot of questions. Did you feel empowered to ask the same kind of questions to try to connect her to the resources she need needed? Or, you know, what was what was going through your mind when you were lost in this period of I have nowhere to turn to, no baseline, no comparison for my daughter's peers to figure out where she should be and what we should do? With my mom, my mom was actually very close to my cousin in London. Um, and he loved her and he adored her. So I think for my mom and my grandmother, it was kind of like a case of deja vu. Um, you know, they went through it with my aunt and then now they're going through it again. Um, I mean, the situations were different. My daughter doesn't have as much, um, as many needs as my, my cousin did, but I think it's just they weren't educated and they, they kind of felt, well, you know, we call it like um, you're, you're grieving the child that you thought you were going to have. Yeah. Um, and I know that I was doing that internally. Um, and I think my family was too. Um, the one thing I will say is that, you know, once she was born and she came home, both sides of the family, I mean, they embraced her. And I am so fortunate because. I never had um, like my in-laws, you know, you know, in our culture, people sometimes want to blame the mom like, oh, oh yeah. there's something <laughs> with you. They'll never blame the, the, the father. Husband, yeah. right? And it's not sometimes. I feel like it's right. always blame the mom. <laughs> right. Like you did something wrong. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, was, I always thought about that, that I was very blessed that my in-laws never did that and they adored her and she was the first granddaughter um mm. for my mother-in-law and my father-in-law um and they just they loved her you know so and i think along with us they kind of learned tell us about you know you had these early interventions what did they look like once um your daughter was nearing school age. And I know that in America, school age differs. Some people say three, some people say five. What did that period look like for you? And what did her early education look like? Yeah, so in Illinois, early intervention runs from zero to three. Um, so that's where the therapists come into your home. You don't have to leave um, and you get everything in home. And then at age three is when she went to preschool. Um, so it was in our regular school district. They had a class. It was for at-risk students. I think there was a, um, it was blending of, so she was like the youngest probably in the class. And then they had typical preschoolers. Mm -hmm. So actually it was, a, it was a good setup. Um, and she was there from three to five. Okay. So, you know, she got a lot of exposure because she needs it more. Um, and then after that class, that's when we were supposed to make the decision to where she should go for kindergarten. Okay. Um, and this is kind of where everything I feel like fell apart um, because we had her early intervention therapist recommend um, that we send her to a, an, another school district where they have a special class for kids like Hiba. Um, and she said that it would be good for her. It's one-on-one. -on -one. They're smaller classes. And me, again, being a young mom, not having any other children, and trusting these professionals, I went along with it. Uh, biggest mistake I ever made. Um, and I didn't know that for several, several years, um, that that was kind of their MO. 
um, that always they want to segregate kids with disabilities. Um, they, this is their rationale that the smaller classes are better for them and they're not going to be able to keep up with their um, typical peers and parents like me who don't know better. We just go along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until my daughter was in third grade that um, we had a parent-teacher conference. And I remember sitting across from the teacher and I said, you know, she's regressing. So what can we do? And should we maybe look at a regular class for her? And this time when I questioned it, um, the teacher said, not right now, but keep asking. What does and that, that mean? That, it, 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 was, it was the weirdest. It was the way that she said it. It was kind of like, not right now, but it is the right thing for oh. maybe later mm-hmm. and keep asking that question. And that didn't sit right with me. I went home and I got on my computer and I started doing research and I stumbled upon inclusion. And mm-hmm. that has just set me off um, for an advocate for inclusion. But that night I stayed up all night and the first article that came up was from the National Down Syndrome Society. Okay, And it was talking about how there's, 40 years of research that children with disabilities should be educated in the same classrooms as their typical peers. And there's actually a federal law mandating that children should be uh, educated in the least restrictive environment. There have been court cases um, and basically everything points to inclusion um, And I was just baffled. I'm like, it was like I stumbled upon this secret that nobody was telling me. Um, And I went back to the school and I said, you know, what do you guys know about inclusion? And I want my daughter included. Uh And I went from this like really good parent just coming in, signing the papers. So our kids have an individual education plan. They're called IEP. Mm-hmm. And I used to go into all the meetings and, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys know everything here. I'm just signing it. Wow. Um, and so they loved me. They loved me because I didn't question anything. And now when I started asking about inclusion, well, now they got scared. Okay. And the thing is that because they had never tried it, they have no data saying that it wouldn't work with her. And so at that time, they were like, fine, we will do like a six week trial, we will take her into a literacy class. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was they were actually going to go down to second grade and do that. And we're going to take data. And okay. what I didn't know at the time was, was they were setting us up to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, she had never really displayed any behaviors, um, like um, just not complying. She was a very good kid, good student. Um, when they took her into this other class, they didn't give her proper support. Um, so then they started seeing her try to elope and run. And they were like, see, mm-hmm. she doesn't belong here. But nobody would speak up. Right. And I didn't find out until years later that third grade teacher told me that she got in so much trouble for trying to stand up for us. Wow. They were they, they retaliated against her to the point where she finally quit. Oh, no. She came to my house and told me that they did not do right by Hiba wow. and that her hands were tied. And she said that you were absolutely right to fight for inclusion. Um, it was a long journey. Mm-hmm. 
World, an American Muslim story told by American Muslims. Subscribe now to King of the World, wherever you get your podcasts. You're going and you're making a case to get your daughter in an included classroom, which me in an inclusive classroom, which doesn't mean that her IEP is no longer valid because she still gets the resources right. from her IEP or should be getting the resources signed right. in her IEP in an inclusive classroom as well. So the fact that they set her up like this in second grade and said, okay, we're dumping you in this classroom and you don't get any additional resources that you were already entitled to legally under the IEP, that's just... I mean, I would have used that to burn it all down. What did you do? I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, the What they banked on was that we didn't have the funds to hire. So we, we hired an advocate. They charged like $60 an hour, something outrageous like that. And, you know, we lived paycheck to paycheck. That was not something that we could afford. Mm-hmm. I was pregnant with baby number three at the time, heavily pregnant, I remember, Um, The first thing they offer you is mediation. If you don't agree with the school district, you and the school district can go to mediation. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all rigged. That's all rigged against the parents. You go to mediation, there's a supposedly um, neutral party, neutral, non-biased mediator Mm -hmm. uh, that sits there and says the school district's right. Yeah, because they're hired by the district. (laughs) Right. It's all rigged against families like us. And so we went to mediation. That didn't work. Um, They finally agreed to send her to another school. They would try inclusion for half the time. And I found out weeks into it that they were not even taking her to the inclusive classroom. No way. I had the self-contained teacher tell me, why do you want her to go there? I just want to keep Hiba in my bubble. And I stared at her like, you've got to be kidding me. All yeah. this fighting I've been doing, all this money <laughs> I've been spending, yeah. and you want to keep her in your bubble because that's where you think she's happy? Yeah. So then yeah. I some more, um, hired some more people, fought some more. Um, we actually got inclusion by default. Because her home school, her neighborhood school, so the law says that the child has to go to the school that she would go to if she did not have a disability. Mm. Well, that was the school that did not have a self-contained classroom. So she would have to go to the regular classroom. She would have to get support in the regular classroom, which is how it should have been. Um, and so I said that this is what we're going to do. And they, they agreed by, you know, just because I, I pushed their hand, but then what they did was, so this was, I believe now fourth, no fifth grade. Um, they included her, but they were taking data and every time she had a meltdown, um, also they were not modifying any of the curriculum, which is also something that she's supposed to get. Right. They were not giving accommodations and support so basically violating the law left and right of course um and and then at the end of the school year they said we had an IEP meeting and they were like yeah so she's not making any progress and when we go to middle school we are not including at her at all and we are going to put her in a self-contained classroom and there's nothing you can do about it Huh. And I that at that point, I was like, I don't agree with this. 
Um, and as a parent and as a member of the IEP team, that's what they said. This is what the team believes. I said, well, I'm kind of a member of this team <laughs> and I don't agree. Um, and so at that moment, we go into a stay put. Now, this is really, really important because a stay put um, basically freezes her IEP. Okay. And at this point, we have a fully inclusive IEP that we got by default. Right. And they were ready to change that. So now when we file for due process, it froze that IEP. Mm. And now we're going through litigation. So we file for due process. We get an attorney. Um, you know, it was months of going back and forth. I saw an attorney in Chicago that charged me $500 an hour. And he told me that even if you manage to win this in court, which there hasn't been a case like yours, um, there's no inclusion police. So they mm. can say that they're going to include her, but you don't know what's really happening. Right. And if the district is so unwelcoming to your child, why would you want to put her in this school? Mm-hmm. And the thing is that I had a house of 10 years. I couldn't just up and move. But after he said that, I actually moved the night before my due process hearing. I went and got an apartment in a school district that was known for inclusion. Okay. And so I was paying for an apartment and my house at the same time, but that basically put the end to the due process um, court case. And now we're in another district. And now we still have that frozen IEP that says she's 100% included. So that was my reason for moving because if they had had their way, they were going to change the IEP. And if they had changed it, then we would not be, we would not have gotten inclusion. So the Mm -hmm. IEP follows you anywhere you go Mm. to whatever school district, whatever state you go to, it follows you. And actually I had sat down with the special education director in the new district and I laid all my cards out. I said, we filed for due process against this district. We're moving here. Can you tell me, are you going to include her or not? I know you guys are gung ho about inclusion. And I just want to know the truth. And they actually told us even which schools would be good. So mm. we got the apartment next to the school that had um, experience with inclusion. Mm-hmm. And best decision I ever made. That's awesome. But then what happened to the lawsuit against the other school district? It, it went away. Oh, um, before, so during all of this, actually, we had to have a change.org petition because they weren't listening. Sure. So I made a change.org petition. And, and that's where, where when you were asking about the empowerment, mm-hmm. up until now, I was not empowered. Up until now, I was still trying to navigate this journey. I didn't really go out of my way to tell people that my child had Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Actually, she didn't really look like it. Right. Um, and I want, you know, when I introduce my child to somebody, I don't want to say she has Down syndrome. Right. You know, I felt like I wanted them to see her. And yeah. her name is Hippa. She's not a kid with Down syndrome. Um, but when I made that change.org petition, it was like everything was out in the open. And mm-hmm. you know what? For the first time in this journey, I was not ashamed mm-hmm. because I saw what they were doing to my daughter. And I said, if I'm not going to be her voice, then who will? Yeah. Who's going to advocate for her? You know, they were doing, I mean, they were violating the law. I reached out to so many organizations, some not-for-profit. I asked them to do pro bono work. I mean, nobody. We had, um, there's an organization called Equip for Equality mm-hmm. in Illinois. 
And I told them everything that the school district was doing. And they were just like, we cannot fight this district because this district is very powerful. They had high powered special ed attorneys on retainer. And that makes me so mad because we're having to take money out of our pocket to hire attorneys. And that district has attorneys paid for by taxpayers and by you. (laughs) So they're using my money to fight me in court. That's hilarious. And no, it's actually not. It's absolutely tragic. So you know, you're, you're talking about everything that you had to do. Was there at any point, either before or after the change.org petition, that the Muslim community stepped forward and provided you any support? And if they did not, what do you wish they had done for you instead? I did reach out to CARE okay. um, because I felt like this is a Muslim student who's having her rights violated. Um, you know, we gave them all the documentation. And at that time, they said, you know, we don't take on special education cases. Sure. I think both were the ones who referred us to equip for equality. Mm-hmm. But again, everywhere I turned, there were just doors shut in my face. Right. Nobody wants to take them on. Um, and also I feel like there, there's something, there's some conspiracy um, that they're all kind of working together. You know, these organizations, the school districts, the attorneys, like, um, you know, their goal is to basically bankrupt the parents. And I've had attorneys tell me that, like, you are going to be $100,000 in debt, your house will be gone, and they will keep fighting you. So what do you do, you know? And I actually had to fight my family, because there was not one person in my family that thought that what I was doing was right. Um, I got told that I just want to pretend like she's normal. Um, what do you think she's really going to be? Um, you know, why are you fighting so much? Like, is she going to be a doctor? Um, and I, I mean, I can't even tell you, I had teachers in our family, like her actual, like, I don't even want to say, but you know, very close, close family members who are teachers in this family that I approached and I asked them for help. And they all basically said that they didn't believe in inclusion and how hard it was for them when they had students with IEPs in their classrooms. Uh And that, that broke my heart. Um, And I I think that the the bigger issue here is that in universities where these teachers are going for their education, there's a special education track, and then there's a general education Uh track. Uh So these teachers, they go through the general education track, they don't want to deal with kids with special needs mm-hmm. because they said that's not the track that I chose. Yeah. Um, and my argument is how come a doctor doesn't choose, um, you know, whether or not they want to treat a person with a disability. They don't. They are supposed to treat everybody equally. If a person with that, like the, the pediatrician we went to, mm-hmm. if, if your patient has Down syndrome, you treat them. You treat them the same way that you would treat any other patient. Um, So why is it different in education? I think the the issue here is because, you know, even in medicine, there's specialization, right? And while I would be happy to take care of a child with Down syndrome, I would definitely be consulting like a cardiologist and making sure that, you know, there was appropriate counselors, like education counselors on hand too, to make sure that, you know, we were meeting those comprehensive needs. But I think, you know, it begs the question that, there is 40 years of research 
showing that inclusive classrooms work, not just for people with disabilities, but, you know, people of all ages, like there's no such thing as segregating, but we like separating things. We like categorizing things. We like othering things. And the fact that there's 40 years of research that says inclusive education works, yet there's two separate tracks in every college of education for general Mm -hmm. and special, it means that all of the data that's being collected or has been collected and the research that's been done is not translating to the university level. And it's certainly not trickling down into the high school, middle school, elementary level. There is no research that shows that contained classrooms of any kind, four walls are appropriate for children to learn it. And this is my unschooling soapbox. And it really breaks my heart to hear that other educators and even family, um, Muslim people, did not step up for you and advocate for your daughter um, because that must have been really crushing for you. It, it totally was. And it's interesting now because now when they see we've been here for five years mm-hmm. in a fully inclusive school district and they see how much growth she's made. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I hear that I was right. Um, and That's I didn't awesome. do it because I wanted to be right. Right. Um, the sad thing is that the corruption is on the most senior level. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get funding from the government for special education students. I mean, right. they get a lot of funding. Um, and I think where the corruption is, is they don't use that funding for the students. They use it for sport. Uh-huh. They use it for other departments. Um, so until self-contained classrooms are completely eliminated from every school, and that is my goal. Oh, wow. um, and no one, no one can argue against that with me because I will. <laughs> You'll take uh, them I to mean, school. <laughs> because, you know, all the research shows that it doesn't even matter if you have a severe disability, that self-contained classroom is not where you need to be. And I believe it's the state of Vermont mm-hmm. um, that does not have self-contained classrooms or they wow. have eliminated um, them for this reason. Um, Illinois is basically down at the bottom for inclusion. Um, Uh, We actually, before, or while all of this was going on, I almost moved to Wisconsin. Okay. Stoughton, Wisconsin, which is like um, very rural, I'll tell you. Sounds like it. (laughs) When we walked into a Culver's, they looked at us like we were aliens. Yeah. Truly. Like they were like, where did these people come from? Um, I went there several times because there was a school that won an award for inclusion. Wow. Um, it was an elementary school and I went and I was ready. I mean, I looked at homes. I told my husband, I don't care. I'll move alone with, with my daughter. If that's wow. what it takes. I actually made him apply for jobs in Wisconsin because I was just so, I, I just knew in my gut that that's what, she needed. Mm-hmm. And that's where all of this came about. Like the way that all of this came about where how I unearthed this huge secret. I felt like Allah was guiding me the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, we didn't, luckily we didn't have to go all the way to Wisconsin. Um, we found a district that was 20 minutes away from where we were. Thankfully. We sold our house and um, you know, I'll say that there have been bumps in the road with this district too, mm-hmm. but the difference is that they don't say no. They don't just say no without like actually they don't say no. 
really at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know if it's me um, or because they know my history. Um, right now, we have a great team and, you know, I'm helping them or I get resources. I've always brought inclusion consultants into this district wow. and they have welcomed them. Um, whereas the other district, um, when I wanted to bring in an inclusion consultant, they said no. And out, it was yeah. just, just flat out no. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting enough, after I left, months, months after I left, they hired the most famous inclusion consultant in America wow. for $200,000. And I said, but you what? didn't want to hire mine for one-tenth of that? Yeah, You said no to me. And so now they're shouting from the rooftops how inclusive they are. I've had families come up to me and they said, you made them change. Yeah. I mean, it's sad. it's sad that they didn't change for us. Oh, by the way, they were so scared of my change.org petition. Of course. That's really because bad press. <laughs> 18, yeah, I had 18,000 signatures. And every time somebody signed, they would get an email. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and they, during mediation and during due process, they kept saying, tell her to shut that change.org petition down. No way. And I, I kept it up for so long because I'm like, I want you to get an email. Every time somebody finds this petition, I want you to get the email. Um, but yeah. That, I think that that's um, huge because you changed the culture, obviously, even though you and your family was not able to benefit from right. um, that change. The fact that it's there, you've potentially paved the way for somebody else in inshallah that'll be a sadhakajaria for you so and for your daughter you know for in in uh, inciting that change so may allah reward you for that i'm more and more aware as a mom of what we're not providing our families and what we're not providing our families that have one or more people with disabilities what do we need to do better um as a masjid community as a masjid family for those um disabled Muslim brothers and sisters of ours? So there is an organization right now. It's called Muslim, Muslims Understanding Health and Special Education Needs. Um, and I actually found them um, during this whole mm-hmm. issue with the school district. Um, so what they do is they've actually partnered with masjids um, and they provide support, um, but they provide support for special education uh, families. Mm-hmm. So, um, I love what they're doing. Um, the only issue that I have is that it seems like a lot of the programs are still segregated. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, the Saturday Islamic school that my other kids were going to, I went to them and said that I wanted Hibba to attend. Um, and they needed to give her an aid to be in the regular class. Um, and so I think at that time she was like in sixth grade, mm-hmm. um, but obviously her education skills um, were not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wanted to put her like in kindergarten. And wow. so at that time I was like, okay, fine. You know, they're not there yet. Like, I mean, I just came off of this huge battle of inclusion. Um, and I know that they were just learning. Um, so I even agreed to bring her down a couple notches, bring her down a couple grades. Um, but they just didn't have the staff and the training. And what I was told is that we have a special class for kids with um, with disabilities. 
and they get one-on-one support. And so here in our Islamic environment, I'm hearing the same thing that I just, and I even connected them to her IEP team in um, middle school at that time. And I said, they can share with you their behavior intervention plan, what works, how to keep her engaged. Um, You know, they can help you. And they, the team was ready. Uh And Unfortunately, I think as a Muslim community, we just are not there. Yeah. Um, I, I was told that, you know, with Saturday school and Sunday school, it's mostly volunteers. Yeah. Um, they're not certified teachers, right? So if you're not a certified teacher, if you don't have experience with special needs, um, it can be, you know. A huge challenge. Yeah. yeah. It can be difficult. Um, and I chose not to do not to keep her in that special class because I just felt like here we're doing it again. We're segregating yeah. her again. Um and I don't believe that separate is equal. Yeah. And I think until we can understand that and move from that, um, you know, yes, I I, I love that there are some activities for all of us special education families, um, special needs families to attend. But that doesn't make us feel like a member of the community. Right. Again, we're feeling like we're the 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 few, the few on the side, um, you know, dealing with our kids with special needs. I I don't know what the answer is. Um, the Mosin, um, it's Sheikh um, Umar Suleiman. Uh-huh. He's the one who um, who founded Mosin, and I had emailed him, I think, a long time ago, and I and I told him that I was really concerned about this because I love what you guys are doing. They, um, they have, uh, Umrah trips, Hajj trips that they take with, yeah. um, individuals with, um, with disabilities. But again, I'm trying to focus on the bigger picture and how can we, and how can our kids be included, um, in the general population? So if you have all of our kids in a segregated class in the Saturday school, mm-hmm. what are the other kids being taught? Yeah. They're being taught that our kids are different. And so they have to be over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're never going to learn how to deal with how to, you know, if they ever come across somebody with Down syndrome in their community, they're going to shy away, right? Because they're not, yeah. they've never seen that and they haven't gotten that exposure. And that's actually why inclusion is so important because it benefits everybody. 100%. It benefits mm-hmm. the school. It benefits the typical peers. It benefits the the, the able children. With- I think is what is really really important because as an abled person, I yeah. also had I not been um, involved in my extracurriculars with the special education classrooms, I would never have encountered anybody with a disability. And I mean, there were some severe disabilities um, in the schools that we attended, but again, they were like this completely separate, almost like untouchable and not in a good way. And I think that that was a detriment to our education because we did not learn how to interact and how to, um, uh, how to be fair and just, 
And we need to learn to be fair and just to everyone. I think that's like the problem that we're having in society right now is justice is gone. And as Muslims, that should be of the utmost importance uh, to us. And I think um, all the work that you've done to that end, to bring justice to our classrooms, to our disabled Muslim community, to all disabled children, really, because it's not just Muslims you served in that horrible district that you left. So I'm, I'm very thankful that you did this, not just for your daughter, but for all um, children with disabilities. And I'm super, super um, happy that you came back to talk to us about this during Disability Awareness Month. And you just told me prior to recording that October is also, do you want to fill in the blank for the audience? Yes, it is Down Syndrome Awareness Month. And it's very important. Um, I think the most important campaign um, that we're working on as a community is to end the R word. Um, I think that that is very hurtful. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of us grew up saying the R word, we did. you know, in casual conversation and not really understanding um, the, the effect that it has on families, on the individuals with disabilities. And so, um, you know, you'll see that everywhere on Instagram and the R word campaign. Um, mm. And then, all the hashtags for National Down Syndrome Awareness Month. I'm trying to work something out with my um, with our school for this month, but we're already like on day halfway 20. through. Yeah, yeah um, it's just it's been a rough month for us. So sure. you know, I try to keep in touch with the school, and and what I love is that they're always open and willing to hear what I have to say. I mean, maybe they're scared of me, but... Um, <laughs> it's okay. I would bank on it. Fear, like, sometimes makes us do really good things. So <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. So we'd yeah. like to close um, with something to help the audience get to know you better. It's the rapid fire. It's just the first thing that comes to mind, and it doesn't have... There's no right answers. This is just mm-hmm. the first thing that you think of, okay? So I okay. am going to set the stopwatch for one minute, and we'll start with what are your top three favorite movies of all time kuch kuch hota hai um of course why not um i'm trying to think of an american movie uh i don't have any um i'll say dil to pagal hai kuch kuch hota hai basically anything with shadow <laughs> yeah bollywood i am an srk fan too and i am number one ddlj <laughs> yep oh okay yeah. yep i got all the three okay perfect what is your biggest fear that my daughter is going to grow up alone and with nobody to take care of her. Okay. I think you've taken care of that by giving her four siblings though, mashallah. So don't worry about that yet. Um, what job would you be terrible at? Waitressing. We were just talking about this. Really? Waitressing? Yeah. Yeah. I just would not have the mental capacity, the coordination. Um, <laughs> just can do it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I can't, if I don't write it down, I will forget it. So I have a lot of respect for the servers who are able to remember our complicated orders, hold the bacon, like don't, you know, cut it with a separate <laughs> knife and all that. I would forget all of that. So thank you so much for coming on for Disability Awareness Month and educating us about how important inclusive education is. I feel like we're going to do an entire series just on inclusive classrooms. I'm super excited and we might even have you back for that. So thanks again, Sadia. I know it. this is an odd time to record and I really appreciate you making time for us. Jazakallah as always, you are such a great supporter and just an inspiration to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you guys so much. 
All right. Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.